Hi, I'm Max Weisbrod. This is another episode of Inflection Point. Today, I'm joined by Jeff Matlow, who runs a change management consultancy called By Title Only. Jeff supports founders at companies with 30 to 130 employees, as well as he does leadership coaching for senior executives at Fortune 500 companies. Jeff, can you tell us a little bit more about what y'all do? Absolutely. You know, to describe what I do, I probably have to give a little bit of my background. It'll only take an hour and a half, so I'll give the short version. I, I'm a recovering entrepreneur, so I started four companies, and three of them were acquired by public entities. So I, And then I've been in senior management at the public entities. One of them was just a great case study on the first time somebody raises venture funding. And so through the process, you know, I, I, I've been involved in every stage of company growth, and I tend to change industries every 10 years, too. And so I've been involved, you know, I started in entertainment, I ended in sports tech. And so, uh, you know, my, my perspective of things is less about here's an industry and focus, more about leadership and best practices. So after I sold my last company, I started being contacted, getting contacted by friends and asking me to help them with growth of their companies. I realized that there is a sweet spot, uh, as you mentioned, from about 30 to 130-ish people. It's usually around, say, 6 to $12 million in revenue that a company gets to, a founder-led company, where it's a big moment of transition. And the transition could be a number of different things, right? One, it could be fundraising. Maybe they've got seed or series A or B. Two, it's usually a time where they've got to really look at the leadership team and processes and, and things like that. And so I come in and help them. I'll give a little more about that in a second. But what I've also been asked, I've been contacted over the past year from senior leaders at, at as you said, Fortune 500 companies, venture firms, et cetera, to ask me to help kind of mentor, empower, and coach them. And that's a lot of fun. I usually, as it turns out, I'm working with senior female leaders and helping them navigate a misogynistic environment, usually, and really empower people. So I enjoy that part, too. I'm really a fan of leadership, right, and leadership principles and helping people avoid all the horrendous mistakes I made over my career. So got a couple of questions, a couple of places where I want to dig in, but I think the place where we should probably start is, you know, if we're talking about these companies like six, $12 million in revenue, it's, you know, they're starting to reevaluate and look at their leadership teams. What, what is the pain or what are the problems that, that they are needing to solve that drive them to need to make any kind of changes in the first place? What are they seeing happen? Yeah. So what they see happen. So the symptoms of that stage are, Revenue starts slowing down. Revenue growth starts slowing down. So they're still growing, but they're no longer growing at the 20 or 30%. Maybe it's 5%, 10% or, or less. Secondly, they start seeing culture start waning. So people are finally leaving the company or maybe there's not as much happiness and camaraderie that, that, that they want. So I usually am brought in for the symptoms, right? Company has reached a plateau. They want to extend beyond the plateau. The thing is with entrepreneurial led companies, 
they all, especially first time founders, they will all reach that stage in the beginning. And it's because the skill set you need as an entrepreneur to get to that 30 people is dramatically different than what you need to get beyond. And it's why uh, I think 0.01% of founders can get their company beyond 10 million. And you really have to change your personality. But as an entrepreneur, right, you think, oh, I've gotten my company to 6 million, 7 million. Like, I'm just going to keep doing what I'm doing. It's working. And it'll take us to 50. Well, it won't. It'll take you back to one. And listen, the, the, the founder entrepreneurial mentality is I need to know all the answers. I need to do everything. I need to keep pivoting to make sure I figure out what my, my market fit is. And I need to be the one that people come to to know their direction, right? And that works up until the point when it dramatically doesn't work anymore, right? And so then they've got to turn into, instead of knowing all the answers, they got to know the questions, like what questions to ask in order to empower people. Instead of shifting, you know, pivoting every two seconds, you got to focus. And it may not, you may not, you know, believe in it all the time, but you got to do it. And so what I come in is, and I help with leadership, right? Like assessing, are we empowering the people in the right way? Do we have at the baseline a foundation? Is there a mission, a vision, a purpose, uh, you know, values that, that decisions can be based on? And then how is each team set up? Do they have, it's really hard for founders to have accountability and let people just do their job. And so are the leaders in place and empowered to do their job? and be held accountable for it. And so I come in and I work pretty quickly. And, and honestly, what I say to companies is, listen, if I'm here beyond six months, you got bigger problems than me. Like there's probably some sort of, there's a product thing. But my perspective coming in, since I've run every type of department, I technology, finance, customer service, you name it. I, my imposter syndrome has me learning a lot about how to do every job. And so I can talk to any leader and know enough to annoy them, right? Like, and so it helps with founders of, all right, let's look at each department and make sure that they are doing what they're doing and guiding them through that. So I, I get my jollies out of that. It is, it is very different turning an inflatable kayak compared to like turning, you know, the Titanic, right? Completely, um, completely, yes. And it's hard to get, for, it's hard to change out of that mode of, okay, today I'm going to be doing something completely different to saying like, hey, you know, if I try to change the priorities of this, then that's going to have to go through like a level of, you know, potentially directors. It's going to have to go through a level of managers. It's going to have to go to team leads. It's going to have to go to, you know, individual contributors. And it's going to mean massive shifts in, in everybody's workflow. So like, how do you, how do you get through to founders who are, you know, seeing that, you know, shift where they aren't able to get the same kind of response times on, on, you know, the things that they care about. And it feels, it feels like they, they have a less responsive organization to their needs. Like how, how do you, how do you communicate with that? Yeah, you know, it's I'm 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 part consultant, part kind of change management leader, and part therapist. And sometimes the therapy part kind of goes up higher. Now the good news is, I have an entrepreneurial mindset, so I know they're crazy. Like when I'm talking to these entrepreneurs, I'm just talking to myself 
for the most part, right? Like, and I'm that, also crazy. Yeah, like you know, I I could probably tell your person. I could tell you all things about your personality, you know, in about five seconds. And so what I I talk to entrepreneurs the, to these founders, and I'll ask them some questions. You know, what do you think? Your how will your employees describe you? Well, they're always going to say, oh, maybe I micromanage and maybe I change things around a lot. Of course you do. That's what you've had to do. And so it's first gaining their trust and saying, listen, I'm, I know this. Let me tell you what you're probably doing because I've done it before. And let's discuss what you actually want, right? Do you want to control the color of that image that's going out? Or do you want to make more money? Because, you know, my, my mother is a therapist and she would always say to me, listen, you could be married or you could be right. You can't be both. And so I've taken that to, to business, right? You can be a great leader or you could be always right, but you can't be both. And so the point, the only way to grow is to let these other people fail right? They're either going to succeed or fail. The good news is if they fail, you get rid of them. The better news is if they succeed, you look good. So let's figure out how to take a breath and find out, you know, when you see that flashing light, hold on, give me a call, give your COO a call, whoever it is to keep yourself like the world's not going to end if you don't chase after that. And so Again, a lot of it in the beginning is just self-awareness, right? Let's understand what you're doing and how it's impacting other people and impacting your goals and then working with them to get there and then working with the team to make sure they are empowered, right? Like make sure the leaders know what they need to accomplish so that they can do it. It's like, you know, sales is one of the, the bigger things. And what I've always said with salespeople, your job at the base level is to make three times your salary. If you're not making three times your salary every year, you probably aren't going to have a job. Now, do more and you'll make more money. And I want my salespeople to, to be make the most money in the company. But it's clear, it's clear, right? It's black and white. And uh, so it's teaching leaders how to do that. So I'm sure that all of these are very hard-won lessons. Earlier, you mentioned just offhand that you know, uh, one of the companies that you started would be a case study in, you know, a, a founder getting their first time venture. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? What do you mean when you say a case study in that? Yeah. So listen, I'm, I'm, I'm older than I want to be. This was back in the first dot-com boom around 2000, 2001. And in the late nineties, you know, I always, I want to know new stuff. I'm always downloading, you know, the apps, new technology. I want to, I want to be the early adopter. And so I started an e-commerce company in like 96 and it was uh, going really well. I was in the music business. I started it in music and then expanded it to really all youth products. Right. And it, I ended up turning it into a separate company and we were growing very well. Then in, early March uh, 2021, I got approached by a venture firm and they want to invest. So awesome. Let's grow this thing. Woohoo! I've never raised venture before. I had grown other companies. So I raised money and 
long story short, they committed to following up investment. Uh, I'll tell you the end and then I'll bring it back, right? They committed to following up investment. They decided not to because they closed seven other companies. The entire market had collapsed. And so I had to fire one day, you know, 40 people and shut the company down. And I transformed it to something else. So what I learned, why I say it's a case study, is when you're just starting out and just raising money, people say it's not about the money. It's about all the other things. But you really want the money, right? Like, I need the money to grow. But then you get the money and you realize there's not a culture fit. Like, we don't agree on the same thing. They don't really know my business. And they're not providing any value. Like, I'm spending more time, more effort keeping them updated than they are helping me grow. And them not knowing the business in my model, they're not actually, I'm listening to their advice, but it's not advice helping me grow. And in the end, I should have not done that. And I had lost, because I got venture at that stage, I didn't have a lot of leverage. And so, you know, it's understanding the power dynamic. When you give up power, who you give it to, what type of power you give up. So I took that lesson and, and two companies later, I put money in my own, I raised some seed round and I refused to do venture. And finally, five years in a firm, I twisted my arm enough, but I had all the power, right? So I was able to just give a small piece away to a very valuable partner and a very valuable strategic partner, Fortune 500 to focus on helping me grow the company. So that was, you know, the case study is like the mind of the leader. And yeah, money is good. You need money to grow, but the wrong money is bad. And you're better off just doing it on your own. Yeah, I think a lot of companies are learning this lesson right now, especially if they raised in, you know, 2021. Completely. And what's really interesting is that if you look at the companies that raise venture and you compare them to peer companies that did not, you just never recover your cost structure from raising venture. You know, like if you raise venture and you hire in order to try and, you know, goose growth and test more ideas all at once and, you know, you build out all this extra staffing, you never unhire, you never right size. Yeah, and there, you know, there is there is some people who play the game really well. My buddy um, Eric, he was a co-founder of a company called Scopely, which just sold for five billion dollars. And so they Shiner Bach on him, right? And they had very smart fundraising, and they were able to put the money to work in really growth-focused ways started a new company and he's doing the same thing, right? And he's raising a significant amount of money. He's raised a significant amount of money, but, you know, he, he is knowing how he's putting that money to work that is going to get growth. And I think that's one of the bigger problems, especially with the smaller companies that I help of, they say they want money, but they're not exactly clear of how they're going to use it to grow, right? They know how they're going to use it not to grow, but... You know, it's got to be focused on what's going to get your revenue to the next level. And, uh, you know, part of what I do in my work with venture firms, too, is ensuring that these 
you know, seed series A companies have a strategic plan. Like, what are you going to do? How are you going to do it? And what are the metrics you're going to hit? And if you don't hit it, what's going to happen? I know from my own business, like we've been pushing out a, like basically talent matching for executive roles, right? And I've talked with a couple of people who were like, you know, are you like raising or anything like that? And I'm like, well, how would I deploy the capital? Like, you know, there's nothing that, how would, how would it allow me to like, you know, either test my assumptions faster or grow faster? Is there like a revenue engine that I could, I could blow up with, with more money and it doesn't really feel like there is. And I wonder, like for a lot of these early stage companies that are going and raising like a couple million dollars or, or any of these things without like a, you know, couple of even sometimes even like revenue in the door, it's like, could you, could you prove your model without, without more cash, just like through handshake agreements and phone calls, right? And then, then learn a little bit before you bring on capital partners. How do you advise companies that are early stage like that? Yeah, you know, I have a, a great example of one that I was brought into. They've raised a few hundred million dollars at over a billion dollar valuation on year two, right? They were growing revenue and, you know, early revenue was under 10 million, right? But but they had a, a good growth. Good story. Yeah, they raised all this money. 150 people at the company. I was brought in because exactly what you're saying, like they raised a bunch of money, but they weren't sure how to actually grow the company, right? And so all of a sudden, there's a heck of a lot more pressure. Like whenever you raise money, there's pressure because people aren't giving it to you for free, right? They want more money back. And so they, they didn't have a plan that they can stick to. And then they got stuck with investors who were like, we gave you a lot of money. There better be some growth here, <laughs> like some better growth. And, you know, investors think, oh, they're, they're investing in a growth company. They're really investing in a startup, right? Who's trying to figure out their footing. And so the, you know, when you, whenever you start a job, right, you interview for a job, you start the job, the job you interviewed for in your mind is always going to be different than the one you actually get, right? Like, because you tell your story of what the job actually is, what you think the job is, and then you start and like, oh, this isn't actually my job. Same with investing. Like investors have an idea in their mind of what should happen and what they're investing in, and then reality sets in. And then they realize, what's going on with Right. And so, you know, investing that, getting that investment in, like, you got to know how much to get. Like, that company example is a great example of they raised too much money. Like, they should not have raised a few hundred million. They should have raised 10, right? Or 15 at first. Proven their model, got more leverage, and then gone to a, a you know, billion dollars in two years. So, again, I found a lot of founders thinking, how much can I get? No. Question is, how much, how little do you need? And that's the number you want to raise. And what are you going to do with that amount to create triple the value the next time around? Yeah. What What are your levers? How much can you act, actually deploy against moving those levers? And, you know, where, where do you want to get to for that next milestone? 
and who's going to get you there and how are you going to do it? And not devaluing to culture from the get-go, right? Like you got to learn to empower people from the get-go because all we, all companies are people. Well, now they're AI, but people in AI. And so let's just focus on the people part of, you know, people, they need to be motivated to be innovative. And so how are you doing that internally, which doesn't really require money, but money doesn't hurt. So if we're looking at, you know, the next couple of quarters here, what are you seeing happen in the market? What do you think are like the big trends that, you know, founders and leaders need to be aware of? And, you know, how are you navigating all of this? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm sure that if you ask 10 people that question, most of them will say the same thing. So I'm going to stick on some of the same thing stuff. Of course, there's AI, right? Like it is the growth of of its integration into society and into business is dramatic. And, you know, it's crazy that we're only really nine months into this, right? When ChatGPT launched. And so how is it, you know, how can people leverage the power of AI to improve the customer experience and drive growth as opposed to AI for AI's sake? So I think that's one important thing, you know, depending on, on the organization, growth proofing, which one of my clients uses, which I think is a better term than sustainability, right? Like we are losing resources in our earth. So what are you doing as a company to combat that and not make the problem worse in the next years, you know, that's going to be at the forefront more and more. And especially, you know, manufacturing companies, retail, those that are shipping things, like what what's happening there? I think the kind of fragmentation of of talent, a lot of people are getting fired. There is a very big, as you very well know, there are a lot of fractionals, a lot of consultants out there right now. And you can't wave your arm without smacking 40 CMOs in the face, right? Who are all looking for your work. You know, the question is, are, are companies continually going to shrink and then just outsource everything? Is that a better model? I'm concerned about work, about the job market, right? People are losing jobs. They're being replaced by AI in some cases. They're just not being replaced in other cases. So people need to eat. There's just not enough work out there. And, and so I think everybody's got to figure out, okay, how can I be most efficient and effective for the organization that I'm working at in order to drive growth? So, you know, I, I, I'm really curious at the fragmentation of the market and where that's going and how that's going to play out. But I think that's going to have a huge impact that people don't know. Yeah. You look at like mid journey, for example, they're what, like tens of millions of dollars in, in revenue and they've got like 10 employees. It's incredible leverage. Yeah. I was thinking I was, I, you know, I am a mid journey addict and I started wondering how much did Getty images lose over the past two years or year with the growth of, of mid journey, because listen, I would have to, I, I would go to stock places and buy images. I haven't bought an image in a year and a half. And I just create them all. And so, yeah, like it's putting, you know, when I started in the music business and the music business was very opposed to technology, right? The, the entire business, I will say in general, had an attitude of we're the best. Everybody loves our product. Nobody is going to put us down. 
And then this guy, Steve Jobs, comes along, right? And it's like, ooh, iTunes, let's put the music, all the music in one place. And in a year, there's no more music business, right? It's gone. And so, you know, the question is, how are these things going to take over other industries? And AI is very clear in nine months, it's going to destroy industry, right? In fact, the writer's strike. The like, writer strike, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. And, and if they, if like, what, let's be real, like you think Netflix is afraid of, of just circumventing that, that whole thing and just, you know, scabbing it up. Like yeah. content is going to get produced regardless of, of whether or not the guilds are on board. Right. Right. I mean, yeah, that one's a little complicated, more complicated, but the fact is that it will take over a lot of it, right? And, um, but I was even looking, I, got, I saw an article the other day how they're using AI to transcribe hieroglyphics. And I'm like, of course, of course they're doing that because it could probably do it in about five minutes where it takes humans about 50 years to figure it out. So there go all the archeologists, like their degrees don't mean shit anymore. So they're gone. And I read that in Vegas, they expect 30% of jobs to be replaced by AI in the next 10 years. So even bartenders, right? You're just going to plug something in and the robot pours your drink. And like, where do those people get work then? So I feel like there's a tension here because if you look at like, let's look at, at software engineering, right? Software engineering is probably one, going to be one of the most heavily disrupted fields for for AI. And that's because basically the entire corpus of their work is written, documented, structured, and like highly detailed all on in, in, in like software, right? Like you could, you could easily load up like, uh, change logs from, from GitHub and people's commits and, and, you know, reversions and changes to code and tests and all that shit. And, you know, you can get a, a pretty good you could build probably a pretty good agent that um, simulates the simulacrum of of a of a engineer. Yep. But like, let's look at software engineering as as a whole. There's more demand than ever right now for for software engineers, right? And I'm not saying that AI's impact has been fully felt yet. It's it's just starting. But you know, when there have been technological advancements that have increased the leverage against individual software engineers, we've only seen demand increase. So, you know, if we look at like open source software, right, that enables software engineers to leverage the same pieces of code across different companies, frameworks like Angular, uh, React, stuff like that or even like infrastructure as a service. So like AWS, um, you know, GCP, Azure, all of those are things that reduce the barriers to entry for being an effective software engineer um, and also increase the leverage that you're able to get from a single software engineer working inside of a firm. And yet all we've seen is an increase in demand for those people. So I'm kind of curious, why don't you think we're going to see the exact same impact where if a marketer is able to deliver 10 times as much, like, why don't we end up with more marketers, not less? Yeah, that's a good question. So a couple, first, a little background on me. I believe that The Matrix is more of a documentary than science fiction. 
I think that that there's uh, there's power in computers, right? I, I I joke, but I do some work in the in the sports industry, and right now in the running business, the big events, the New York marathons, Boston, Chicago marathons of the world, are seeing record numbers, and everybody's saying running is booming. Fact is, they're seeing record numbers because travel's too expensive. People don't have the time or desire to do more events. And so they're only doing one. So all the small and mid-sized companies are, are hurting, right? So then this goes back to your question. Now, people are not going to be replaced in, in full, but will smaller companies be able to leverage AI to replace people better than larger companies will? Like there is, you know, or more impactfully, than larger companies will. There are more smaller companies, there are more mom and pops, there are more small entrepreneurial ventures out there than there are big companies. And listen, if I were starting a company and I need three developers, but I could only afford one, well, I'm going to get the one that's really savvy with AI that can help turn into two people, right? And if I had a bigger company, no, I want people. That's Innovation comes from the people. And so... I think that there's still going to be that demand, but I wonder if there's going to be that imbalance, right? So there'll be demand at bigger companies, but less at the smaller kind of midsize range where it's really got to be about much more efficiency. And, you know, my fear is, again, I don't think people are going away anytime soon, but will the bar be raised? So there's only, you know, 100 jobs, but there are 200 people. So the 100 best people are going to keep getting the jobs. And the question right now, you know, I'm, I'm helping a bunch of clients trying to find new people. And the, the mindset is still the people we want are still have a job, right? So we need to take them from where they are because everybody else got laid off. So let's get the best people who still have a job and give them another job. Very true. Yeah. W which doesn't help society, but it helps the companies that can afford it, right? So... You know, I'm I'm curious to see how this plays out and which companies are really going to benefit, which companies are going to, you know, keep growing human labor. And because of that phenomenon, because there's going to be increased demand against, you know, these these hyper contributors or, you know, just great executives even who are just very good at understanding a situation and making effective decisions and saving saving time by you know focusing on the two or three things that are going to move the needle instead of trying to spin up 20 different projects or any of the the anti-patterns that you, know, you see happen in, in some of these small companies or big companies too it does mean that you know there is going to be pressure for them to basically fractionally consult across different firms they're just going to be able to make so much more money yes yeah, completely. And uh, in fact, one company that I that I work with, they want to hire a, they've never had a VP of finance or a CFO and they should, and, and they want to hire somebody full-time. And I'm like, you don't have enough. There's not enough problems. Yeah, there's not enough problems. Like you run a good business. You need, you need just a CFO for like four hours a month. And then, you know, maybe a VP finance or a controller or something. And so 
Yeah, I think the good news is it opens up more opportunity. We have a lot more opportunity now for companies like that, small, mid-sized companies, to use capital more wisely and not have people sitting around when you don't need them. The bad news is, like, you know, you still have a lot of people who need work. And that's not going to magically come if nobody's hiring. And frankly, a lot of people who probably need to be reskilled, retrained, if you're used to working in a company that has, you know, $600,000 annual run rate, but was burning $10 million a month, then there's going to be some challenges to the quality of the decision making that's happening, you know, at the executive level and inside of the firm like that. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, and I, I really wonder, and listen, I'll take this back to the music industry too, right? Once the internet came around, or really, you know, SoundCloud and then some of the other tools, including GarageBand and things like that, people can make their own music all of a sudden. Like it doesn't cost $100,000, $200,000. costs like $99.99. And so it created this fragmentation of the industry where YouTube became the place to find everybody and stars come out of that, right? People that you would otherwise have never heard of. And so the good and bad is now big companies have to focus on the, the sure things that they know will work. Where smaller can take, there are a lot more smaller ones, and it can, but they can take a lot of risk. So in coming to business, you know, I'm curious how that's going to play out too, like, the big companies, are they going to have less risk? Do they have to have, be less risky, right? And whereas now there's going to be a lot more startups that can do it so inexpensively these days. And especially with AI, like that's one of the really great things of, about it. And so, uh, you know, there might be new ideas. There might be more ideas that are coming and, and bubbling up. And so that I think that's really exciting. And to your point about like YouTube and the emergence of YouTube and SoundCloud, you know, as part of like this uh, democratization inside the music industry, there are new channels emerging, right? Like you've got the ChatGPT like plugin store, for example, and it becomes hard for, for these smaller firms, you know, as these you know channels pop up everywhere. Like, how do you focus? How do you think about channel, you know, channel market fit or channel product fit, whatever, like where do you actually focus your effort and resources for getting yourself into the market and distributing? Where are your customers? Do you have any clients who are like looking at these new channels or exploring them and are they interesting? Are they seeing any traction there? Is it useful? Yeah, I don't have any that are really doing that. I have some, you know, there's an agency I work with, a digital agency that is doing some more AI work and especially in digital graphics and 3D and and I hate the term metaverse, but you know, that world, that stuff, but not really deeply into it. But listen, I, I had to look through and edit a press release this morning before we got on this call and there needed to be a quote in it. and I just didn't like, I didn't want to be late for this. So I had two minutes. So I went to ChatGPT I put in the press release and I, and I prompted it to write a quote from XXX about this. And it gave a perfect quote that I didn't have to change at all. And so in two minutes, great, that project's done, which would normally I'd either have to get a person to do it, have a phone call or whatever, right? 
So I think, listen, AI is has already creeped in in small ways with everybody. If my father knows what ChatGPT is, then everybody knows what ChatGPT is. My question then becomes when it starts doing what Jobs did with the iPhone, when it starts destroying or changing industries, you know, we they already can create, I might as well be an AI thing right now, right? I could be. It could be my face, my voice, answering questions. And that changes the game for customer service. I, I, you know, I can't stand having to wait in line for, you know, 15 minutes for a chat. Right? AI allows you to chat face-to-face with somebody immediately, anytime, 24-7. Who probably has a better handle on the SOPs across the company and a better understanding of the documentation. Without question and in real time. When something changes, it knows right away. And so, yeah, there goes customer support for big companies, right? There goes the people. There go the people for it. There goes the ops person who was, you know, basically learning and development guides to to retrain those support teams too. Yeah, yeah, completely. And, but then on the other hand, here comes more technologists, right? Who have to build that. So, you know, maybe some jobs get replaced by higher skilled positions or different skills instead of customer service, it's it's coding. But, you know, I guess it goes back to your point of, we got a moving ball, a bouncing ball right now, and people have to learn new skill sets. And, you know, if you don't like where AI is now, wait for another three weeks. It'll be somewhere else. And so you got to figure out, you know, what's the skill set that's most valuable to a person's growth and opportunity in the marketplace. And I'm curious, you know, I, I'm, you know, people will be leaning into AI more and more. So I'm curious how it's going to play out. There's going to be a lot of bad iterations of it, but the ones who do it well will will do it well. I look forward to whatever Amazon's going to do. And how are you? How are you seeing the introduction of AI uh, to like companies that you support? How are you seeing that you know impact the shape of the organization? You, you do change management. Yes, you know it's only in little ways now. Uh, and again, I think it's changing. It's it's still the wild west out there, and. You know, you go, I was on the plugin store pretty quickly. And a lot of the plugins that started, that launched four months ago are gone in ChatGPT. Like these, they're leaving. They're, they don't have a long life. And so things are changing pretty quickly. And so I advise, you know, I'm looking for opportunities to integrate AI, but I don't think the world yet, especially for the companies I'm at, are, is at a stage of having the discussion let's not hire somebody, let's use this machine over here. I think it's, you know, for me, it's, okay, what can we do? What tasks can be done better through that? What other tools can we do? You know, HubSpot has their AI writing engine, companies that use HubSpot, like, I don't need to edit. Just go in and have the AI come up with something for you. And, And it's usually pretty darn good. And so what I try to do is just incorporate tools like that to make people's jobs more, make them more efficient in, in what they're doing. It's worked for all improvements so far. Yeah. Yep. Well, thank you so much for your time, Jeff. Really enjoyed speaking to you today. Where is like the best place for people to get in touch with you if they want to find you? Go to 
buytitleonly.com, spelled like it sounds. The the take is leadership is not a title. So there are people who are leaders by title only. Let's go to by title only. And you can contact me there. My newsletter is called the best leadership newsletter ever. 10,000 plus subscribers. It is the best leadership newsletter ever. Sign up for that. You'll like it or read it. And yeah, hit me up there. Okay. We'll be sure to drop links to both your website and also your newsletter below. And also you'll see Jeff's social handles. So thank you so much for your time, Jeff. It was delightful talking with you. And thank you everybody for listening to another episode of uh, Inflection Point. See you, Jeff. Thank you. Bye.